dulce et decorum est. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and toward our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells, dropping softly behind. Gas. Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie. Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. It is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. Hello, and welcome to Molding Masculinity. I'm Tom McFarlane, and I'm here with Philip Sipe. This week, we are talking about uh, something that I think is fundamental to a lot of kind of what, like if we want to talk about toxic masculinity, and I think maybe the biggest systemic end of toxic masculinity and perhaps the most impactful in a large-scale kind of way. Um, yeah, do you want to introduce what we're talking about this uh, week, Philip? Yeah, we are talking about um, war, warfare, the sort of warrior idea culturally and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting topic, one that, you know, uh, reaches very far back into the history across a lot of cultures. And so as a result, you get to see a lot of different and yet some often very similar attitudes uh, around war um, across history. But, uh, you know, war is, um, I suppose, conflict in a sense, you know, at what point it becomes war is probably a matter of metaphysical philosophy. But um the you know conflict violent conflict um is probably as old as humanity um in fact you we know that from the archaeological record some of the earliest uh tools that you find in uh the tool using uh people are are tools of war uh weapons and whatnot and there's very clear archaeological evidence of warring between uh humans and their their uh 
ancestral cousins, uh, people like the Neanderthals and other, um, what you might think of as humanoid uh, species. Yeah, so war is um, certainly something that's been around for a long time and uh, has changed shape a lot over the course of human history. Um, so, but we're gonna be looking primarily, trying to focus primarily on, um, you know, what are the conceptions of it today? How does that apply to men and men's issues? And um, looking back at history as a sort of way to gain some perspective on things that might feel um, obvious or natural that may not be. Yes, uh, and and I think that last that last statement right there, I think, really hits on something that for me took a long time to fully process, and that is that that it looks and feels something obvious and natural, but it isn't. And and with that, I mean, and I say this coming from an angle of I am a um, generally I try to be very fairly politically dog non dogmatic. You know, I don't want to like I don't care about the titles and the 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 you know, specific things of politics, but I am very aggressively anti-war. I think in the modern sense of warfare, it is something that is twisted and, and in almost in virtually every single instance is something that is twisted and manipulated against the people who are involved within the conflict. And with that being said, I, I think that, that that's not something I uh, was always with as especially as a teenager and as a young boy you've got these kind of fixations that come along with that kind of fold into warfare and i think part of that is socially driven you know we're driven to play with toy soldiers and uh to uh to play war and and, and you know we're taught about you know every a lot of what i was taught in elementary was from a framing of like within war like all of my knowledge of history began from within the framework of warfare and and that's something that you see especially in western tellings of history you see that really endemic going a long ways back where all of history is told through the frame of warfare which then leads to the people who studied history through that frame to want to create their own history through that frame and so this is where you get this these ideas of people trying to be the next alexander the great trying to be the next roman empire trying to create their own history through the lens of which history was explained to them and and this i'm, I'm trying to not sidetrack myself too much here but this is one of the reasons also why i think that history very importantly needs to be taught outside of a framework of warfare i think it needs to be taught from the framework of understanding cultures societies and peoples um, which exists far beyond warfare like if you were to say that american culture only is pertinent and as such as it relates to the military you would have an incredibly uh two-dimensional slice of American culture. You would miss out on so much. And the same is true if you study Roman culture only through their warfare or, you know, any other, any culture only through its warfare. So Yeah, and, and actually, uh, you know, on that, you know, specifically, you know, like, uh, as someone who uh, was kind of like, uh, as, a, as a teenager, like, very into, like, you know, war and the history of war and the evolution of warfare, I you know, got a little bit into Roman history as well. And it's actually like really interesting from a, like, uh, you know, something that like, for example, people probably, at least I didn't know for a long time. 
and I would imagine a lot of people don't know, is that uh, Romans, for an incredibly long period of their history, self, like there's their conceptual, cultural self-identity, like when they thought of like, what is a Roman? Um, like, what's the ideal Roman? The answer to that for an extremely long time was a farmer. <laughs> um, the, the sort of like a farmer who owns their own plot of land, you know, cultivates the land, grows enough for his, for his family. And, you know, it was his, uh, you know, women didn't get to own property in Roman culture. And that's a whole other thing, but, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, sort of tilled the land, provide for his family and, you know, had enough to, to, you know, save up for a rainy day was sort of this ideal Roman thing. So it, it's really interesting uh, that, you know, what we have, it, what we ended up with was this idea of the Romans as these like perfect conqueror, warrior, imperialist society from a society that tried very hard to make the farmer the central um, idea and struggled a lot with that in, in conjunction with a lot of other political bullshit that was going on. Anyway, all that to say, uh, you're like to, to validate what you're saying um, is that um, it, viewing any culture solely through the lens of its wars and its warfare and its ex military militaristic expansion is a really like um you know limited view because like they didn't expand 24 7 the entire you know time like the romans didn't like they expanded in particular moments for particular reasons so it, you know it, you can't understand those reasons um, purely as a like, uh, I think too, too many people like to treat warfare history like a, like it's a video game. Like, oh, we, we're we're the Roman Empire and we need to conquer more territory because that's our victory condition. And it's like, well, life it doesn't have a victory condition. It doesn't work that way. Like, people don't go and die because you need to have fifty territories, including five specific territories, to get the victory screen. Like, that's. You know, I think too many people like kind of evaluate history like that. Um, but, you know, this is kind of getting into a, a whole different aspect of culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is. And, and I think this is, you know, with these particular kind of topics, uh, it, it's a difficulty you run into is that it is such a large scale topic. There's so much to talk about. There's so many different angles and places to especially for uh, uh Folks like myself who easily rabbit hole down into something, uh, we, we get lost. We get lost in the weeds and go after something else. Um, something that I think we've talked about here in the last couple of episodes uh, that is has been done that I think is very helpful and I want to do here, and that is uh, using a fictional medium to discuss and kind of explain how this relates to one very specific thing and so you get this in star trek our favorite thing to bring up um with the klingon empire and the klingon uh race if you will we only see them described for the most part with a handful of exceptions in star trek as through the lens of warfare now and there are some people who would argue that the only culture that the klingon empire has is warfare but I don't think that's fair. I think that's just what we have seen through the lens of Star Trek. I, you know, we get these little glimpses, like through Balana Troy. Uh, I mean, not Balana Troy. Uh, Balana on Voyager. We get these little glimpses into some like actual Klingon culture that kind of hints that there's something more. But with the show 
specifically targets is warfare and individual and personal combat and how that interplays within a society. And it kind of starts as like the idea is that they are the villain race, which is a whole problem that I will say Star Trek has a problem with is villain races, uh, uh, quote, air quotes around that, that kind of exist within Star Trek. But it, the Klingons expand beyond that, but it still remains something toxic within Klingon culture, specifically toxic within the masculinity of Klingon culture. We see Worf having to overcome this uh, as he decides what it means to be a warrior, and he himself decides that serving as a officer on a science ship is his own form of, like, being a warrior. And, uh, and I think that, I don't know, I think there's a lot of helpful lens and, and helpful framework that exists within that for sure yeah i definitely think that um yeah the klingons are certainly in uh, a insight into how at least the culture of the 80s and 90s maybe the early knots as well um were was looking at um warriors and warrior culture and the masculine stuff surrounding that i think there's a lot of interesting insights um you know for example like there's very much this sense of um a romanticization of it um about how awesome it is and they certainly uh when when they are fighting in a sporting way i'll say one-on-one little sword fights or fist fights or whatever like there's there's often this sort of like um camaraderie between the two um, that you do see among people who engage in sort of martial arts, um, like people who do um, like real martial arts, like judo and taekwondo and stuff like that. Like they will, um, there's this sort of sense of like, all right, we've, you know, sit here and like punched and kicked and thrown and all kinds of stuff each other, but it's to learn a thing. And, you know, it's to, you know, be better at this physical, medium and uh you know there's a certain there's a certain bonding that you get from you know punching a person over and over and then uh you know drinking water and and chilling afterwards um but uh you know it's funny that when when they get into conflicts violent conflicts in the show where um the stakes are raised. It's no longer just like a fun thing or a bonding experience or anything like that. It's not training. It's like whoever wins or loses this matters. It's suddenly like, oh, that was a uh, you know cheap tactic or dishonorable or wasn't correct or you know oh uh, you know that wasn't there was no honor in this like blah 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 like there's all kinds of like suddenly we have to like there's they're warping actively warping their their romanticization of conflict to protect themselves mentally from defeat or to uh, cast disparagements on someone who they don't think should have won or all this stuff that that really puts a lie to the um, the whole uh, romantic story that that culture seems to tell itself about how great everything is is like uh, you know war is great but any particular instance of war actually just sucks and is dishonorable and uh is bad and can't you know that's not the right way to do it and then like you know 
that's never the right way, right? Is is the is sort of the point I think uh, of the whole thing. Yes, yes. There, there never is a right way, and I, and I, and I, and I will say that I think something that I think Star Star Trek struggles with is never quite gets to a a, a very fine point, and that is that in, in personal combat, in one on one combat, in what the Klingons love to do, it is about personal skill, strategy, tactics, capability, just like any good martial art. It's this like measurement of all of these things, and then it's who's the best at this. Warfare doesn't ride on that. It doesn't rely on that. It doesn't function off of that. Warfare is, by nature, the randomized death of two sides of a fighting of of of, of you know two fighting forces meeting in battle. It's it's randomized death. It is uh, there are not these chances to stand out in the open comfortably and uh, show your honor in a in a you know fair duel. Like you know, a fair battle is not a you're not succeeding at battling. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm I'm getting lost in the weeds there again. But it's I, I think that's a fundamental part of that is that there is no honor in this like randomized death that does is a repeating trend now to break into reality. This is a repeating trend that you see uh, in history in discussions of actual combat and actual warfare. Is always this these people people who are told. Going into it, the romanticized version, the the honor the honor version that you are going to defend your honor and to show your purpose and to do this wonderful thing for your country, and then you show up, and it is just people to the left and right of you dying and random, and it is infuriating and it feels helpless, and I think that disconnect between the two. I think there was a lot there that I think causes a lot of issues in society and, and, and the disconnect never getting connected. You know, when you, in the, you know, this, this idea of like, there's something where I mean, you have people who never uh, participate in warfare yet glamor, glamorize warfare and live life kind of like Klingons, uh, you know, drumming drumming the war drums at all times and talking about how wonderful and glorious it is for men to go to battle and die in battle and all of this but they never do it um and a lot of times these people get elected into office and carry that attitude into office uh and then send people off to war even though they've never done it themselves and that the problem there isn't that they've never gone to war the problem is that they have never gone and they have this glorified idea, and those two realities have never connected for them. Yeah, I mean, like that to me is the is there's there's this interesting disconnect in the way that like war and soldiers and glory and all that stuff are talked about in the sort of public consciousness, particularly fueled by politicians. Uh, not soldiers. The only soldiers that generally are trotted out to speak about it are either are often like high-ranking officers uh, who also aren't really um, in the in the trenches per se. There's the disconnect between the way that that's talked about there and the the way that people who actually are in the business of doing the thing speak about it. Um, you know whether you whether you go all the way back to something like all quiet on the western front you know written as the perspective of a 
from a veteran of World War One, or um, you know any number of you know poems or novels that have been written about all the other wars, or even just go and get testimony from current you know people who have participated in the Iraq War or have been in Iraq uh, you know anytime recently, and they do not describe a glorious combat of, you know, honorable soldiers, uh, you know, defending one's country and, and, you know, they, what they describe is a horrific cutthroat, violent hellscape. <laughs> um, it's not like, it, there's a huge disconnect between what the actual people doing the violence and the, being on the gr boots on the ground say, describe, and the way that it's described among um politicians and those for whom it is convenient to send young men to die for uh various gains you know there's much has been said about like you know getting oil out of iraq or you know lithium out of south american countries or whatnot like um whatever the ultimate reasons are even if they are as justified as like oh you know terrorists attacked us and now we have to go uh stop them from attacking us again um still it, it isn't a glorious and wonderful like you know opportunity to sacrifice for your country it's it's a terror yeah and i mean and this is all of like that is one brick and kind of the wall of of the foundation i should say of manufactured consent and another one cuz and, and another one that does come from frontline like I, I say this from a family of veterans is in, in from a family of veterans and from a historical point of view and another what i mean in this is there is something that we explore and we understand in the historical framework that is this recurring thing uh in written record where you find that the soldiers in virtually any conflict aren't fighting for whatever the political goals or intentions of that nation are. Uh, they are instead fighting quite literally for the people to the left and right of them. And we see this in uh, writings from Nazi soldiers, from Confederate soldiers, uh, but also from like Union soldiers, Allied soldiers, um, Vietnamese soldiers, and American soldiers in Vietnam. Uh, it's just, literally every conflict you see these writings after the fact and during the fact where they discuss, uh, where they show really not a care about the political, you know, nobody's out there in the battlefield thinking about what the political goals of uh whatever their country is they're really just thinking about because they are in a suddenly traumatic situation they are in a fight or flight response and they are thinking about fight or flight response in as it relates to the people to the left and right of them and so they're trying to protect their brothers and you get this idea of brotherhood that comes out of combat um and, and there's another thing to unpack and why this is so male centric but that's for a few steps down the road here. Um, and so you've get that. And that was something that coming from a family of veterans, I got a lot was this idea that you kind of need to join the military for the sake of your brothers, for the sake of your friends. You know, you, everybody else is going off to war. I have to also. And you see a lot of this reported in, you know, kind of like that 
interwar period between World War One and World War Two. This is explored a little bit in like the movie uh, uh, Hacksaw Ridge, which I don't really want to rag too much or like rag like I don't want to get too much into the the fictionalized depictions of that kind of stuff. But you do see this in actual writings where people are kind of talking about that in the interwar period, this idea of uh, veterans from the First World War explaining how important it was that somebody else in the town there saved them, and that's why they are still alive today. And so people get this idea of like, oh, so um, if my best friend is joining the army, I need to join the army. That way I protect him and I can bring him back. So you get this brotherhood concept kind of built up that I think is very endemic. It, I mean, it almost got me in high school. Uh, my best friend in high school died in Afghanistan. And uh, it, it, it's something that even today, I, I don't I feel guilt that I didn't go with him, but it I have some kind of feelings about it that I still really haven't fully unpacked to this day. And uh, I, I think there's a lot to talk about in that, in how we how we address that within ourselves, how we process this within ourselves and how we process it better when trying to raise young men and, you know, uh, helping young men not fall peril to the clutches of manufactured consent. Because all of these things are something that the system relies upon to get you willing to go run into a hail of gunfire so that they can achieve some menial political gain. Because also when you look at the actual end results of every single war, situation of warfare in modern times the actual end results and what actually was accomplished is always frustratingly menial compared to what the cost was i i have a hard time with with it because like on the one hand like you know certainly there's some truth to some of the narratives about war in the sense of like in the instance where you are um peacefully minding your own business and someone and and some outside group comes to attack you there's there's some truth to saying like hey you know like we got to defend ourselves the people who are going to do that let's you know hype them up and talk about how great they are and how we recognize the risk that they're taking and all that stuff um and i think there is value to that and i do and i think that a lot of the people that end up signing up for the military um have that kind of thought in their head of like i want to give i want to sacrifice for the people here but it's very frustrating you know knowing that like because i have a lot of family i have a lot of uh i have some friends who um have joined the military and either are currently in it or uh have are now out of it but i know that that attitude is why a lot of them joined uh, and it makes me angry when, you know, you start to look into, you know, the reasons and the manufacturer consent, uh, which if anyone listening doesn't know already is the idea of how the media sort of um, propagates up a handful of narratives to sort of uh, pacify the public and acquiesce them to uh, war and violence abroad, um, where if we really understood what was going on and why, we probably wouldn't all choose to send our young men and women to go die for that cause. Um, but 
you know, like when you start to pull the mask off of that and see, you know, what all this blood is being spilled for, um, it's incredibly infuriating. You know, um, I think I, I, I have mixed feelings about like the war in Iraq, for example, specifically because it's like there was a sense in which like, you know, the like I, I don't think that it was as simple as we went there to get the oil. I think it was more complicated and nuanced than that, but it certainly was a major motivating factor. And certainly there are other in foreign involvements, uh, especially if you read a book like The Open Veins of Latin America or something like that, where the motivation for us military, using the military to interfere with um, other countries is highly questionable um and had we, we've spilled a lot of blood of our young people to benefit not the people who suffer from those losses um it's to benefit you know the politicians and the rich people who have access to you know these resources that they can you know acquire and commodify and make a profit off of. And um, it really like, it really makes me angry thinking that some of my family might die for such a stupid, greedy reason. Yeah. And I, and I think especially with extremely modern conflicts, like looking at what's coming up in Ukraine and looking at what happened really with the last 15 years of Afghanistan is it's so far removed from immediate. It's not an immediate reason of like, well, there is this resource there and we want this resource. It's, it's, I don't think it's that simple anymore or not, not even that. I actually, I wouldn't say that simple, that complicated anymore. Um, it's kind of an intertwined thing there of it's, we have created this massive military industrial complex and it has to keep turning. And if we don't have a war happening, it threatens its existence. And so therefore we have to have a war ongoing. And that's like one of the things I see happening with Ukraine is this, there is this big push that we need to do this thing and we need to support Ukraine, but there's no, you know, Ukraine's been uh, at war uh, in, in the East. Yes. Eastern Ukraine has been in a state of war since 2014. We haven't felt a need to get involved until we finished up our other wars and now we need an engagement somewhere. Um, and I mean, and that's something that is happening right now. So it's, I'm only really able to speculate on things, but I, I don't know. That's a thing that I tend to, that frustrates me. I feel like it's so much of a, you know, just as simple as keeping the wheels turning that it, it, it frustrates, it infuriates me, but I don't, I don't want to dive, too, I don't want to get too wrapped up into the, the kind of more personal, frust, personally frustrating elements of that, of this, um, more of yeah, the, for sure. um, and, and I'm not criticizing you for going there because I went there first. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I think putting it on to, putting a lens onto it, I think, I, I, I think it's an important groundwork to set because the, the real conclusion here to me is that we have, you know, it's like, to, to me, when I see a narrative that's continuously propped up by people, um, particularly people in power, right? 
there's the open question of is is this true because it might be true so we go and investigate and we find out okay it's not true it's the war is not glorious the people who come back from it don't describe you know a, a great experience about how proud they feel of what they've done generally like the things that that people say on the national stage about war and warfare and u.s interests abroad are not true so what is true is the is the next question like if what they're saying on their face isn't true why do they say it right because and like why does it like there's the question of why it persists which is a whole you know investigation into propaganda and whatnot uh but then you know you do that investigation and figure out well there's a lot of money in making sure that this there's a lot of money put into making sure that this persists oh well that's interesting why is there a lot of money in making sure that persists you follow that string one more step and it becomes very clear what's going on is that like this narrative of how great war is and how all of our young boys should be proud to be soldiers and should do all this stuff is a narrative that serves the profit motive the interest of people who make their money having easy cheap access to resources or people abroad and it's, um, you know, I, I think that's an important groundwork to lay specifically to say that like, you know, this lie, like you follow it and you can follow the rationale and the logic and you can find the historical evidence and all that stuff to know that like, it's, this isn't just like, um, it's not like, um, what am I trying to say? There, there's there's some versions of like masculinity and masculine issues that are oh this is like a stupid cultural remnant from a while ago or from a different time and like it's persisted in culture for a while and we really should like get rid of that like oh you know like pink is a girl's color or whatever like it's not for boys like that's a dumb cultural thing like it doesn't like uh you know in like some sense it may serve some sort of marketing demographic you know we talked about that a little bit uh prior like but you know at its core like no one went like aha now we will make pink into a boy like that kind of existed already and they shaped it to their ends but like like that that's different this is like an active narrative being per perpetuated um by moneyed interest for the purpose of getting people getting young impressionable people to sign up to do a thing and convince them that what they're doing is some part of some sort of glorious historical great sacrifice so that they can die and secure resources for a bunch of rich people like and that is a very different sort of ha masculine harm than believing that pink is for girls hundred percent, hundred percent. I agree. And I, and this is one of the biggest things that I myself, especially as I get older, struggle with how to carry on, how to teach uh, my kids and how to mentor to others because my, both of my parents, this is a huge facet of both of them wanting to raise me is they did not want to raise me and then have me join the military and do exactly what my dad did. And what my dad did uh, ended in him having a lifelong severe uh, medical disability that has changed his life outlook, and they didn't want that for me. Um, and they almost missed the mark, like, because they don't know 
how close I came to still, no matter what, anyways, joining the Navy. Uh, when I started college, I was, my first semester was very much a, I'm either going to succeed this first semester of college or I'm going to join the Navy. And like, I was getting, I, I was physically fit for basic. I was like, I had the, the little book where I was studying everything I needed to know. I was going to join. Um, and now that I'm a little bit older, I look back on that and it just, it eats me up in that like how fucking close I came to making the biggest mistake of my life. Um, and, and again, and that is to, and I do want to reiterate something that you said earlier is that it's not that I'm, I, I don't, I, I have a deep respect for veterans. I, my problem is with the system, not with the people who are eaten up by the system. And I do think that there are like, you know, there is a purpose and a necessity for militaries and for defense and for protection. I mean, like, um, bad people invade other people. We do it a lot. It is very clear that other countries and like all, everybody has to protect themselves. But yeah, that, that, how do we stop like individually the people in our lives and the people we raise from making that mistake is so difficult. And I think part of it is just that is, is the be the honesty. Uh, there is so much of a dishonesty that comes in our society. And I think often that comes not intentionally. I think it comes from this idea that it is masculine and cool to present certain elements of military militaristic life and of that whole thing as cool and i'm very guilty of this like i have a big fixation with history and i have a big fixation with military technology i love warships and warplanes and things of that nature um and here's something actually very recently that bugs me is that i made a uh like a lego picture book thing and everything in it is a device of warfare um, but I made it, it was like four kids. My thought was that it was like, oh, hey, this will be like a cool thing for people who build Legos. It's all Lego, uh, what's called mocks. It's my own creations. Uh, and it's like, yeah, this is just kind of a cool, like my thought was to get kids interested in Legos. And after I published it and released it, then I'm thinking, shit, am I just getting kids interested in like military warfare? That's not what I want to do. Um, and that's like how we ourselves end up, I think, often kind of fueling into the system of creating this idea of something being super cool. Star Trek kind of did that for me. Part of the reason I thought it would be awesome to join the Navy is because I felt like joining the Navy would be like joining Starfleet. And it wouldn't yeah, have been. I, 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 I definitely think that there's an element of that. But I also like, I have this other instinct in my head that's like, well, you know, like, if we start going around purity testing, you know, things that people are interested in for one reason or another, like, it, I think it's, I think it's important and fine to examine, like, why do I like this thing? Like, let me think about that. Like, maybe this doesn't, maybe this comes from an unhealthy place. And I think you can unpack that unhealthy place and figure it out and put a light on it. And also like recognize that, like, you know, to quote, or to paraphrase at least, uh, I think it's a Nita Sarkeesian, you know, it's not only necessary, it's not only possible but it's necessary to be able to enjoy uh to watch and enjoy problematic media i think mean, you know like but i think the same is true for like you know like legos and warfare stuff and like like it's fine to be interested in that like it is an interesting um thing to think about like oh man you know like if you got like 
50,000 people, like, and you're going to go do a war, like, how do you do that in the era of Greek, you know, ancient Greek technology or whatever? Like, that's an interesting question, uh, certainly. But like, um, yeah, I think as long as you're, you know, recognizing like that, that can be coming from where that could be coming from, you know, and, and having a degree of self-skepticism about that, like it is, is good. And like, as long as you're not like unquestioningly being like, yeah, weapons are just cool, period. In all contexts, like, it's fine. Like, you know, I, I, I don't want I, I don't want people to get the impression that like you know if you like this thing like that makes you a bad person now like like that liking this thing is like somehow inherently bad and soul tainting or whatever it's I think it's more of a um, you know it's important to examine a little bit of the things you like and be critical of them uh, so that you don't accidentally absorb ideas in them uh, that you know, other things that may be often embedded with, with thing, with those things in culture. Yeah. And I, I agree. And I mean, and I think we're often, especially as men, uh, in masculine culture kind of surrounded in that so many elements of masculine culture are revolving around that. Uh, so many things that I have that I personally kind of like, I think reflect my masculinity also are very easily tied into that. Um, I love firearms. I love firearms. Uh, and, 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 and like I've said in many other episodes, and I think this is always important to state, is that um, you can love firearms and not consider yourself in any ship, shape, or form masculine, and that is 100% acceptable. It's not, it's a non-exclusive element of my identity, right? I, I consider it part of my masculinity. I think somebody else can consider it part of their femininity. But part of that firearm culture also comes with a direct tie into, yeah, ideas of warfare and or at least of personal combat and of the glory of that or of the honor of that or of the interestingness of that. Um, but yeah, like you said, it has to, it has to, it, it's not to say that I should never pick up a firearm again. It's also not to say that I should not process uh, and make sure that I'm not feeding into something that I don't want to be feeding into. Um, yeah, and so I think that I hope that what we've been talking about today kind of doesn't just sound like us ranting, but gives a little bit of guidance um, for both, you know, personal introspection and for uh, mentorship and parenthood. Um, there are po like we you kind of mentioned. I think there are positives of. The, I, I think this stems from things that are part of masculinity is that I do think are positive, a desire to protect ourselves and others, um, a desire to uh, want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, um, a desire to want to like stand up for something and believe in something and to not want to be pushed and to not be bullied. I shouldn't say not pushed around, but like the idea of bullying to resist these uh, to resist, you know, things like fascism, to resist uh, imperialism, and uh, you know, all of these things that do need resisted. That's the urge to do that, whether it be masculine, feminine, or otherwise, is I think something that can be positive and healthy. But it can also be festered into something very, very toxic. I think. Yeah, for sure, and I think like there is there is an open question here of. Why is this tied in with masculinity? Um, why, you know, 
we've certainly kind of been operating on the assumption, you know, like, and, and sort of dancing around it a little bit, not like, because we're afraid of it, but just because like, um, it's a whole can of worms, but, um, you know, what, what is it that gets um, this tied up in, in masculinity specifically? Why is it that basically every culture, um, the arm, their armies across the world, their armies are made primarily of men. Um, and I, I think here I'll take what can be occasionally a, a slightly controversial take in that, like, I think somewhat this is informed by nature um, in that um, fundamentally it's just, it's just the case that, um, you know, if you're going to suddenly lose a giant portion of your population in sudden some sudden violent conflict, it's better for your society's chances of survival in the long term for those to be mostly men, uh, because uh, without getting too crass about it, it's just easy for one man to have many children in a short time period. You know, women are sort of rate limited uh and how many children that they can have um and so um i i think that while while i don't think that it's purely explainable i don't think it's the sole reason i do think it's important to recognize there's an evolutionary element to this of like you know um it's just better for uh, a population to sacrifice men over women uh in in times where um uh you know, losing a, a big segment of the population is a high risk. Um, so just throwing that out there that that I think like it starts, it starts a little bit with I think that reality and then, you know, there's some retroactive justification that goes on that then kind of becomes crystallized even as you know, maybe we've gotten to a point that that's not necessarily a, a relevant uh, piece of the analysis anymore and yet there's still kind of this like lingering thought of like oh you know like soldiers are men you know yeah yeah and i think it's you know very important to point out that kind of like the, the lack of relevancy to today like this is something that does not at all explain why we should keep women out of combat not in any sort of way um it is a possible reason for why in the past certain things might have been why things were a certain way i think there's also like um yeah i i this is one of those where i was kind of avoiding it because i don't have answers for it i think the answers for why it was are less important than why it and then what we could or should do moving forward i yeah. i think um, you know, saying that warfare is, and, and, and that is in its own, its own complicated question of like, you know, it's, I don't love the idea of saying warfare should be for everyone. Everyone should have, <laughs> uh, you know, everyone right, should die yeah. equally. It's not what I'm trying to say, but I do think that everybody should have full bodily autonomy. And I think you do not have full bodily autonomy if you don't have the autonomy to to risk your life for something for all of those things that I just mentioned, something that is larger than you, an idea that is larger than you, uh, for the protection of the people in your community, all of those things are all reasons for why women should have just as much bodily autonomy to do with what with their body as they wish. Um, 
how or why that was different in the past, I think is less relevant than how or why it should be in the future. Um, now, and that's not to criticize any pro you know, like I'm not criticizing, uh, processing or discussing or thinking about what happened in the past. I just, uh, that's my excuse for why I'm not as good at processing about the past on that one. Um, and also, I feel like so much of the past is so muddied by what we kind of expect. Because like one of the things is that we see women uh, showing up in conflicts across history, and e even in societies and cultures where it is a very aggressively enforced that only men are allowed in combat. We see women showing up in those combat situations anyway, um, and and I think that's it's. Uh, I think it's always been a very oppressive thing that we haven't allowed women to have the equal body, bodily autonomy as men. Yeah, for sure. Um, I feel a lot of the tensions in that same scenario of like, I would, you know, like, I suppose if like, <laughs> what I had in mind for gender equality was not now women can be drafted too. <laughs> like, uh, you know, what I had in mind is like, let's stop drafting men. <laughs> yeah. which uh, and, I, and I will say like, cause I just talked a whole lot about bodily autonomy. I am anti-draft and no, I don't think women should have the draft too. I think no human being should ever be drafted into conflict. Nobody should ever be conscripted. I think the very concepted idea that somebody can be forced to give their life to anything without their consent is horrific and just the like top tier worst things that societies and cultures have ever done to human beings well, see but the problem is if we don't draft people then who is like like who's gonna go to war for the lithium <laughs> uh or you know to avenge the prince's honor or whatever you know dumb reason that people have gone to war in the past yeah uh yeah and i mean i mean like even you know wars that i uh, ideologically agree with looking at World War II. I, I, you know, or before World War II, the Spanish Civil War, the, all of the wars against fascism that were the 1930s uh, and in the 1940s. Um, ideologically pro those wars. I think World War II had to be fought. I don't think people should have been drafted. Uh, now there is an argument as to whether or not we ever could have won that war without a draft. Um, and I think that's a fair argument to have, but I still think something's wrong. I think something's wrong. It was wrong. It was, now, yes, the Nazis were going to draft their own people, and that might have led to them having more people than us. That's one of the things that was wrong about fascism. Um, and this goes back, you know, it was a, like many elements of fascism and of Nazi Germany. They were uh, not new to Nazi Germany. They were things that had existed throughout Europe for a long time before World War II, but they were still wrong and evil just like the british started concentration camps um in africa it's it still it was wrong it was evil um yeah sorry i'm not I'm falling down a rabbit hole again there but i'm just very anti-draft oh yeah no i mean me too it's a, it's a um <clears throat> it's a it's probably one of the most transparently like on its surface you know like bad for men men's issues uh like hey you know how like only one gender can do this thing at all it's like yeah 
that sucks. Um. Yeah, I feel like I just tapped myself out with that last little rant about the draft and how much I hate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, okay, I do want to, like, a last little bit of the draft is one of the things that I do find fascinating about history is when you look back in history, you see forms of drafting conscription happen across history in European countries. Specifically, you see instances in the Age of Sail where... Um, you know, the the British, I mean, like, we went to war with England because of doing this. Um, it would, you know, I think the British Navy would, you know, stop at a port, go in, uh, find some drunk guy coming out of a bar who might not be 100% certain where he is. Uh, they would stuff a bag over his head, drag him onto a ship. He'd come to and sober when you're already at sea, and they'd be like, hey, congratulations, you're a part of the British Navy now. And then they would, more. what we actually went to war with them over was they would stop American fishing boats, uh, be like, hey, everybody on this boat who is fit, you're now part of the British Royal Navy now. And when we talk about that in history classes uh, to students, when we talk about that in social settings, we understand immediately, like, wow, that was horrible how would anybody do such a thing and not have a lot of the world angry at them and we do the thing we draft is conscription which is that it was all the same thing and it still is yeah. it's just now we have a bureaucracy to it rather than them catching you as you walk out of a bar and stuffing a bag over your head but is it really better to have a letter in the mail come for you than to have a bag stuffed over your head as you walk out of the bar i don't know Sorry, I definitely sent us down a lot of a rabbit hole there. But. <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> um, that Yeah, that definitely now taps out everything I had to talk about with this subject. Uh, anything else you want to hit on? Uh, no, I think I am good. Um, I, I think, like, I think it's obviously a big thing to unpack, and I don't doubt that we have uh, a lot of, you know, missed things uh to uh missed um points to make you know it's hard to capture something as complicated as this and now her yeah it's not comprehensive that's the word i was looking for uh but hopefully uh we you know captured at least a uh, sense of the issue at hand yeah, at least kind of opened the door to thinking about and talking about that. Because, like, I don't think I've ever, you know, like, and, and this is, I, th I think, at least for me, one of the goals with this podcast is to sit down with another man or a masculine presenting person and kind of kick open the door, kick open the doors to some of these things that I've uh, never really sat with another man and just talked about, like, the, uh, in innate toxic masculinity of obsessions with warfare, right? Like I've never, we've, I've never had that conversation with another man. And I don't think most people or with another person really at all. And I don't think most people have or do. And I think those conversations are valuable, even when we're, maybe it's not a super comprehensive conversation. Um, and maybe we are not, uh, I'm not as salient in my views as I maybe could be, but, um, I think there's still a lot of value to be had in that too, at least, cause hopefully all of y'all out there, the listeners to, uh, have some shower thoughts and introspection and maybe move out and do some research and thinking and looking at things on your own, look up, uh, informed consent, I mean, not informed consent, uh, manufactured consent. There is a lot of literature out there about manufactured consent and much of it will 
shape how you feel about future wars uh led by imperialist countries um yeah it's a really good really good book uh i i also want to double up saying it it was uh saying that you should read that it certainly opened my eyes to a lot of uh way that these things tend to uh tend to play out and 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 it's it's sort of like seeing things in a whole new way yep well uh i think that's all we have this week thank you all for joining us have a wonderful morning afternoon evening or whatever time of day it is thank you